right, all right. What's going on? As Ryan said, my name is Trip Mitchell. Uh, I've been going to the church for about, it's about a year and a half now, right? Yeah, about a year and a half. It's awesome. I love it. I love hanging out with you guys. Uh, just to jump right into it, you saw the video. Um, we're in the series called Rooted. Our entire church is doing it from a big church on Sunday mornings to life groups on Wednesday night to even here on Sunday night. So if you guys didn't, weren't here uh, last week uh, when Ryan spoke, he talked about just who God is and how to have a relationship sort of kind of with him and how, who he is compared to us. So if you guys weren't here uh, last week, I highly recommend it. Uh, you can go onto iTunes. You can go search Beach Student Ministries in the search bar and go to podcasts. You can listen to every single message that's ever been spoke on this stage. Me, Cole, Ryan, anyone else that's ever spoke on this stage, you can listen to it. So if you weren't here last week, it really puts in perspective just who God is what Ryan spoke on last week. So tonight, uh, if you guys want to go ahead, just go ahead and grab the Bibles, pass them down. We're not going to be in it for too long. I'm kind of giving my testimony a little bit tonight. So if you guys got Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, You're going to need one if you don't have a phone with a Bible app, because last minute I didn't tell Cole what verse to do. So it was last minute. God kind of put it on my heart today to do this verse. So that's what we're doing. So once you have it, turn it open to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, it is the sixth book in the New Testament. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, then Romans. So it's really easy to find. While you're opening up, I'm just going to kind of give you an overview of, of the message tonight. Uh, we're talking about rooted, does it, it says God loves me. That is a, that is, you're going to hear me say how much God loves each and every single one of us probably a hundred times tonight. Uh, so everyone found it? Yeah? All right, while well, y'all are continuing to open it up, tonight's message is a it's talking about how much God loves us. Because this life that we're living, this life that is, that is on earth right now, we don't deserve it at all. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve waking up in the morning. We don't deserve going to bed at night. We don't deserve the family members that we have. We don't deserve it. It's by God's unfailing love and his grace that we're even to wake up every single morning. You see, uh, so kind of before you guys leave tonight, by 8 o'clock when you guys walk out that door... It is my job and what God has given me the mission of tonight and back in Jamaica, like Ryan mentioned, that I gave my testimony is to put in perspective just how much God loves us. Because I don't know if y'all, you guys grew up, because and, and, we, we throw around God's love so much like, oh yeah, God loves us, this and that, this and that. We kind of just throw it around and we don't truly think about it each and every single day. So like how I compare it to is when I was growing up, my mom always told me, Trip, I love you. And I would say, I love you back. And she would say, no, but I love you. And I'd be like, well, I love you too. I'd do anything in the world for my mom. But she would say, you won't know and understand how much I love you till you have a kid of your own, till you have a child of your own. I was like, I love my mom, but she loves me infinitely more than I can ever love her because I'm her child. I'm hers. And so that's how I picture our love with God. Like, I love God. I'd do anything God asked me to do, or at least I think I'd want to. But God loves us infinitely more than we can ever love him. So tonight, we kind of throw around God's love. By the end of tonight at 8 o'clock, I'm going to try to put in perspective just how much God loves us. So tonight, Rudy calls it God's loves me. People from Jamaica, I call this sermon breaking point. Breaking point. The reason why uh, is because we're not in a chemistry class, no. Um, The reason why is because my favorite movie of all time, I based it off of a Hollywood film called Point Break. Now, every adult in here has seen this movie, or at least they should have, otherwise I'm judging you very hard. Uh, A year ago, they revamped the movie and made a really cool movie. And if you've seen the movie, you know who I am you know why I love this movie so much. It's about an agent who does a bunch of extreme sports. He does dirt biking, snowboarding, cliff diving, wingsuiting, skydiving, all these different cool things that I wish that I could do. 
And the reason why it's called Point Break, the reason why the movie's called Point Break is because there comes a point in that movie where you're about to do an obstacle, and if you're going to allow fear to take over your life, you're about to jump out of a plane with a wingsuit on, and it's that point where are you going to allow fear to take over your life and overwhelm you to the point where you break down and you're not able to jump out, to the point where fear takes over your life. And I was so excited to watch this movie, guys, that going down to Jamaica, I watched it for the first time. I couldn't even wait till I got on the plane to watch it. Like, does anybody have a movie like that, you know? Like, I was watching it in the car down there. I watched it in the airport with, I got 65 kids running around the airport. I didn't even care. I was watching my movie. And so I was watching this movie, and we got on the plane after I got done watching it. And if you're a guy and you watched an action movie, you're just amped afterwards. You think you could take on the entire world. So I got on the plane super excited. Adrenaline is just rushing through me. And so I'm thinking about this next week coming up. And so I tried to dive down into my quiet time during the, during the plane ride. And I looked out the window, and I was listening to, the, to Oceans on my phone. And God just kind of threw the thought on me, what if the breaking point wasn't with fear, but what if it was with God's love? Talking about not if it was fear that broke you down, but what if you were just overwhelmed by God's love? And that happens to us in a point in time where you just finally realize just how good God is in your life. That he just breaks you down to the point where you just realize, I don't even deserve any of this. You just hit your knees and you're weeping, you're crying because you realize that the creator of the universe, the guy that spoke this world into existence, the guy that it would take us 165 million light years to get to some planet, he measures it with his fingertips. That's how big our God is. And when we have these breaking points, it just breaks us down to the point where we just look up and we're just in awe of God. We, we have no words. Because I was listening to Stephen Furtick this past week, and he talked about this momentary world that we live in, where we just go around and we kind of just... We worry about Chick-fil-A, when we're going to eat Chick-fil-A, when we're going to go to school, when we're doing our homework. And we go day by day, and we, all of a sudden, we're a, a month into school already, and time's flown by. Even though we think it's really boring in school, it's flown by. And that's how life is, because we don't think about the big picture on a daily basis. When was the last time any of y'all sp- talked about death, or even had a quiet time on death? When was the last time you opened up the book of the Bible to Revelation, and what's going to happen after life? When, what are we going to do? What are we going to see? When was the last time you talked about heaven? And so when we have these moments in this momentary life, we don't really think about just how much God loves us and how much and what he's willing to do for us day to day. And to kind of explain it a little bit better, and the only way that I can try to explain it is to give you my story. Um, and I've only actually given my testimony one time my entire, uh, my entire life to a group of people. Uh, I gave it in, in Jamaica this past year. Uh, kind of Cole and Ryan challenged me to do so. Um, and so if I get emotional, don't judge me or anything like that. Um, but it starts out, just kind of the, the, give you the life story of me growing up. Uh, I was way different than I am now, if y'all know me now. Uh, it started out, I wasn't even born yet. My mom was six months pregnant with me at the time, and uh, she went to bed one night. And uh, she woke up in the middle of the night to, a, to an intense pain coming from her stomach. Uh, my dad ran over to flip on the light switch. He turned around, and the entire mattress, the entire bed was just just filled with blood. He just saw red everywhere. And um, so obviously he called the ambulance. They were able to work on my mom. She was unconscious because of all the blood loss and everything. And um, once she got to the hospital, they stabilized her and they, they went to the ultrasound or whatever you call it to like, you know, see if the baby's still alive. And they couldn't find a, a heartbeat at all. Um, they couldn't tell if anything was in there or not. And they just said it was a miscarriage. They did it multiple times throughout the next 24 hours, and they got nothing in return. And so the doctor came to my parents and said, hey, it's time for us to release you. You know, we haven't had anything yet, so just come back in the next two weeks when you're able to. 
after you're done grieving and done dealing with all the pain, you know, you come back, we'll kind of go over your options. And so my parents came during that week or whatever, my mom got up and she finally got out of bed one day and she started doing her exercises um, that she did whenever she was pregnant with me. And, and she was going to do something like the aerobics and the different thing girls do, yoga and stuff like that. And um, all of a sudden she felt a kick in her stomach. And uh, so she called the doctor. Uh, the doctor said, listen, you were doing something that got your blood going. It probably was just a nervous reaction or something different. And the, but, you know, come in. We'll, we'll take a look for it. I just don't want you to get your hopes up. That's what the doctor said. And so my parents go in. Uh, they go into the hospital and everything. And they get in there. They hook my mom up to the ultrasound. And all of a sudden there's a heartbeat, a very good one. Uh, and so the doctors were just threw their hands up, very surprised. And so, but then he comes over to my dad, you know, he didn't want to, you know, burst my mom's bubble of happiness, and he came over to my dad, and he said, listen, you know, most of the time, in most cases, when something traumatic like that happens to a baby, usually they don't come out 100% healthy, usually they have some kind of condition or something, and, you know, we'll continue to monitor it, but fast forward a few months, um, I was born, I was very premature, my dad actually has a picture of me whenever I was born, he fed his he fit his wedding ring all the way up my arm to my shoulder. That's how small I was. And so I was in the incubation room, the IC or whatever you want to call it for, for kids on the ventilator and everything. And uh, the, the condition that I was born with was a, a, a little bit like a heart murmur. Uh, if you all don't know what that is, it's a hole in your heart. Um, except mine was a more uh, rare case. It was a lot different. By the time I was 13, I had a hole a little bit bigger than the size of a quarter on the underside of my heart. Uh, so it led to a bunch of different complications. Uh, I, I, growing up, I, I couldn't play sports. I, I couldn't do anything just because my heart was too fragile. Um, so that was extremely tough, you know, having to, to sit on the sidelines. And I still have the mentality that I have now to where I can still go out and do all these things. And I had it then, but I just couldn't do it. I was smaller than everyone else. Uh, the doctor said that I would never grow up past 5'5", five, five, and I'm actually 5'8", so I beat that. By three inches. Yeah, that's a round of applause right there. <laughs> um, and so growing up, it was really tough on me. And I asked the same question that I know a lot of you out there have asked when you're born into something or something happens that's beyond your control and you ask God, why? Why me? Why, why, why did this happen to me? Why couldn't it have happened to someone else that I know? And I would have given anything for just that original Christian testimony that a lot of kids give nowadays. I would have given my entire right arm just to have that for a day. So growing up was really, really tough, and, and as I continued to grow, I, I couldn't even eat the things that I wanted to eat. Uh, my diet was very strict. Eating Chick-fil-A and all that stuff was kind of off the table. And so it was really hard for me, and growing up, I, 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 I really wanted to play baseball. Baseball was my favorite sport, and the hardest thing growing up for me was whenever I was with my family. My family's extremely athletic. My dad played golf at the University of South Florida. My mom was a cheerleader at Alabama. Uh, my sister plays golf, or she played golf at the University of Florida in Louisville, and now she's actually coaching a, a Division I team out in California. And my brother actually plays Division I football for MTSU up in Tennessee. And so growing up with that, you know, I'd go to social events, and I'd see my family there. And they'd, they'd talk to my sister, and we'd line up, and my sister would be here, and my brother would be there. And they'd talk to my sister about sports and everything like that. And then once they talked to her, you're doing so good, they would skip right over me, and they'd just move on to my brother and talk to him for a little bit about his sports, and then they'd come back to me and say, hey, I hope you're doing okay. And so my dad saw the look on my face after every single time that happened, and it just broke me down to the point where I just hated life. I hated God for everything that he put me through. I hated my family. I took it out on them. 
had a horrible attitude. My grades were horrible growing up. And so I was 13, and my dad... I, my dad finally knew that I had actually had enough of this life that I was living, so he finally called in the, the big guns, his last effort to try to just see what could happen. My dad fasted for a, 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 about a week, and then he called some of his pastor buddies, a guy by the name of David Nasser, and uh, he got a group together of pastor friends of my dad's, and we all got in a room, and he, they just prayed for my life and for healing and things like that, and obviously I'm a 13-year-old kid, a lot like a bunch of you guys in here, just ignorant, not thinking anything was going to happen or anything like that. So we flew up to Atlanta for that, came back down. I was in the room for probably six hours. They anointed me with oil. They put hands on me and all that different stuff. And so I come back down here, and everything's still the same. I, I couldn't eat the things that I wanted to eat. I still couldn't play sports or anything like that. And Growing up, I would make my mom, every single year growing up, I would make her take me to the doctor in November because baseball tryouts started out in December. And so every single year, I would take her there. And every single year till I was 13, every single time I went to the doctor... The net test came back positive. I, was, I still had the condition that I was born with. And 13, uh, that happened during the summer when we went up there, and they, they, they kind of laid hands on me and prayed and still hated God, still hated life. I got to November, and I told my mom, I was like, listen, this is my last straw. I've got to just go see what I can do here. And we went to the doctor, and we went there. This waiting room seemed like forever, and my mom really didn't want to take me because she was just sick and tired of me leaving, defeated every single time. And so we get, we, we get to the time, it's, it's test time, and I take all the tests, and I come back in there, and I was in the waiting room, and the doctor just comes in with the clipboard, and he starts shaking his head, and he smiled at me. So I was like, either he's pulling a really hard trick here, uh, or something is, is unbelievable happened. And so he gives me the results, and he says the test came back negative. So I asked him, I was like, well, what does that mean? And obviously, you know, I'm jumping around the room and everything like that, and my mom's crying, and he said, well, we're going to run some more tests just to make sure be 100%, but you're, you're cleared. Like, you're, you're, you're 100%. The hole in your heart that we found is gone. It's filled in. And so uh, we run more tests, and I'm excited. Give me any tests you want to take me, you know, anything. And so we end up, at the end of the day, I was cleared to play baseball for the next year. And I still remember when I was able to go to practice for the first time. I still remember when I went into that locker room for the first time. But mostly I remember my first game. My coaches did an awesome thing for me. They put above my jersey... In high school, you don't have your name on the back of your jersey, but for that game, the first game I ever played in as a freshman, they put Mitchell on the back of it, uh, just above the number two, and I ran out to center field to warm up and everything, and I remember just being out in center field, and I had my jersey on for the first ever time in the world. I was able to look over there in the stands, and I remember seeing my friends and my family, and at that point was the point where I just uncontrollable just started crying, just fell to my knees, and I just looked up, and I just said, I don't deserve this at all. And it was at that point where God came up, gave me that breaking point to where I realized just how much he loved me, to where he didn't even have to do any of that. And then it led to the door opening of where I don't even deserve to live without his perfect son dying on the cross for our sins and being resurrected in three days. And so we'll go to that verse that I had you open up to early on in Romans chapter 8. And this right here... There's a lot of point, uh, there's a lot of verses in the Bible that talk about just how much God loves us, but this passage right here, I think, sums it up perfectly in just a few verses. Oh, wow, he does have it up. Check that out. Cool. Cole's the man. All right. And so, starting there in verse 31, verse 31, the title of the passage is called More Than Conquerors. My dad gave me this whenever I was growing up and having to deal with this this problem. It starts out, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, but more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine, nakedness or danger or a sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. This right here is my favorite part. Don't miss this. No, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present or the future, or any of your powers, neither height or depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see here, God has given us so many examples, including that passage about how much God loves us. He's got Adam and Eve. See, I'm a perfectionist. If I was God and I saw Adam and Eve mess up, I would have just cleared out the entire slate and I would have just started over brand new. But he didn't do that. You see, he said, it's okay. I love you so much. We're going to continue on. He gave us that example. He also gave us Noah and, the, and Noah and the flood. He was so sick and tired of our, of our race that he decided to finally clear it out. But then he saw one man that was still worth living for. And so he allowed the human race to take on. That's how much he loves us. And there's so many different ones. You got Abraham and Isaac. You got Saul in the New Testament. So many different things. And the big thing that we're going to move on right now, and the biggest piece of evidence that God gives us in the entire Bible, and possibly the greatest love story to ever be told, is, is the life of Jesus, him giving up his son for every single one of us. And I'm not going to be your typical pastor that's going to get up here and just talk about Jesus' life because everyone knows what Jesus did. But what I'm going to ask you to do as we go through Jesus' life, I want you to look at his story, at Jesus' life through God's eyes. So I don't want you to look at it from your person of just like watching Jesus. I want you to look at it through God's eyes, how God witnessed everything that happened. That's how I want you to do it. So it starts out, you watch your son. We're just going to pick up right here. God's, God, you see your son being born. Your son that was sitting right next to you at the right hand of God, who wore a crown and everything like that, is now on earth. That's not punishment enough that he's down here in an imperfect, sinnable world. He was born in a manger, right there. Right there. Can you see it? Come on. You gotta think about you gotta think about it through God's eyes. He's looking down from heaven onto earth. So you see him born, you see him grow up. And we're gonna fast forward 33 years. So you see him grow up to be a teenager. You see him preaching in the in the synagogues against Pharisees and proving everyone wrong. And then he gets to 33 years old. He's 33 years old and he's at the Passover, and you're happy with his entire life. He's done nothing but perfect planning. He's done your plan perfectly. And so Jesus is sitting there at the table, and I can see him. I'm imagining it. I need you guys to be creative. You see Jesus at the table. You see him passing out the bread. You see him taking the wine and passing it around to him, and he's going over it. And all of a sudden, you're God, and you're watching, and you see one of Jesus' best friends leave the table and get up and walk out. And you see him walk out, and you're wondering, well, what's going on here? And, and, and you see Jesus over here. He's still doing everything perfect. But you see Judas, one of Jesus' closest friends, one of his trust, most trusted allies, walks away. He walks out the door and he goes into another, into another room. And so you're omnipresent, so you're able to see Jesus over here, but you're also following Judas over here. And so you're watching Jesus do everything that he's doing over there at the Passover, and he's, he's preaching and he's giving his disciples his last message before he knows what's about to happen. And you watch as Jesus' closest friend, one of Jesus' closest friends, his trusted allies, he walks over here and he just stabs Jesus in the back, stabs your son in the back. And you watch it happen. You watch as Judas, one of Jesus' closest friends, gives up his life for 30 pieces of silver. 
You watch as that happen, and, G- and God, as you're watching this, you can stop it all right now. You're God. You created the entire earth. You can come up with a different plan besides giving up your son. You see what, his, you see what our world has become. You see that one of Jesus' closest friends is giving him up, and you can stop it right there, but you don't. Why? Because God loves us, but it doesn't stop there. So you see Jesus leave, and he takes two of his closest friends, James and John, I believe, and they go up to a mountain of Gethsemane. That's what they call it. And you watch as they go up there to pray, and Jesus is up there, and he's calling out to you. He's praying to you. He's saying, God, Father in heaven, if there's any way possible that we can skip over, that we can come, if this cup can pass from me, if, if we can find another plan, let it be so, but your will be done. So you've got your son up there who knows what's about to happen. He's not saying no. He's not saying take me up right now. He's saying if there's any other way, let's do that. But if not, if you say okay, I'm willing to do it. And you're watching Judas as he leads a battalion of soldiers from over here. He leads them up the exact same mountain. And you watch as Jesus, who's crying out to you, scared. Because, he, I mean, he's obviously scared. He has human emotions. He's fully human. He can feel pain. He's scared. He's saying, if there's any way possible that this cup can pass from me, allow it to do so. And you watch as Judas, one of Jesus' closest friends leads a battalion of soldiers over to Jesus, and you watch as they put handcuffs on your perfect son's life. You watch as they put chains on the son of God. And you could have stopped it then, but you don't. Why? Because God loves us. And the story doesn't stop there. So Jesus leaves there, and they lead him into a, into a room below Pilate's house. Pilate was the guy who ended up trying Jesus at the time. So they can't try him because it's in the middle of the night, so he's got to stay somewhere. So they put him in a holding cell underneath Pilate's house. And if you look at this room, it's a room that's five by five by five feet, which means it's a little bit less than me, and it's five feet wide, and it's five feet wide this way too. And so the Chinese actually use that as a kind of a torture nowadays. They used to use it back in World War II and World War I. And so what that means is you can't spread out. You're in a room, and you can't spread out. You can't curl up. That's all you have to do. It just ruins your back, and it gets to the point where it's unending, and they use it as a torture treatment. So that's Jesus in there, in handcuffs, in this tiny, small room, suffering, and you can stop it right there, but you don't. Why? Because God loves us. And so it doesn't stop there either. You see, Jesus wakes up the next morning as they go in there, and they get him, and they watch him walk across the street up to Pilate's house where they judge everything and it's a big courtyard and you hear the mob in the background just shouting explicit things towards Jesus and you're as God and you're watching this happen and you're watching this mob come up and they're screaming all kinds of things at your perfect son you see them throwing things at him and you're thinking what does my son do to deserve this you see it's so crazy how God's looking at his son suffering all this pain and he's looking at the people that he's going to save and he still allows it to happen That proves just how much God loves us. So you're watching your son who's being tried by humans, by the people he's trying to save. Jesus, the son of man, the perfect judge of that. When we die and we go up to heaven, he's going to be judging us. God is watching his son be judged by us. Sinners. Try to put that in perspective here. So you're God and you're watching this happen. I can't even imagine what God's thinking or anything like that. And so you're watching this happen. And you watch as they lead Jesus away after they try him. The people in that room chose to pick a murderer and a rapist over the Son of Man, over your perfect son. And yet Jesus, yet God doesn't stop it. Why? Because God loves us. 
And it doesn't stop there. Now it gets to the rough part. They, you watch as he's still in chains. You watch as they walk him across the street into a, into a corridor that's outside. And there's a, there's, a, there's a podium there. And you watch as they strip him down and they tie him to the podium with his hand over his hand. And he's bent over. And then you watch as two Roman soldiers walk over here to a table. And they lift up a tablecloth. And it just reveals all kinds of different whips, uh, uh, rods, sticks, all these different things that are used for torture. And then there's this last thing that was called the cat of nine tails. And the cat of nine tails is a whip that's got nine strings on the end of it. And each of those nine strings has different pieces of glass, different pieces of gravel, things like that. That's, that's meant to grab onto your skin so it actually rips flesh off your body. And so you watch as each of these Romans who are laughing, they're drinking, they're having a great time as they pick up one and they walk over to the son of Jesus and they take a whip and they whip him right across the top, right, right across the back. And you watch as your perfect son, who's never deserved anything, bleed right there in front of everyone else. And you could have stopped it right then, but you didn't. Why? Because God loves us. And you watch... As Jesus, who's being whipped and everything like that, after he gets done, you watch as they throw him on the ground and drag him over here to a cross, and they make him carry his cross up to a mountain to where they're eventually going to crucify him. And you watch as he leaves a trail of blood as he walks up that mountain carrying his cross for each and every single one of us up to the top of that mountain. And God could have still stopped it right there, but he doesn't. Why? Because God loves us. So they get to the top of the mountain, and you're still God, so you're still watching all this happen. As, as Jesus' father, as the creator of this world, and these people that you're trying to save are doing this to your perfect son. And you watch as they dig a hole in the ground. You watch as Jesus is exhausted. He's naked. He's beaten beyond recognition, so not even his mother can barely recognize him. And you watch as they kind of pick him up and pull him over and they lay him on top of that cross and you see them open up one hand and you see them stretch it out and you watch as they put a 12-inch railroad spike meant to be a nail through his left palm and you watch as they pull that hammer out and the hammer goes back and at that one moment, God could have stopped it, but he doesn't because he loves us. First nail goes in. They grab his right hand. They outstretch that one too. They put a 12-inch railroad spike in that one, too. Just imagine it. Imagine your hand right now. And they stretch that thing out. And you're God, and you're watching this happen to your son. Stick it in there. Next nail goes in. Then you watch as they cross his legs like this. And you watch as they take that third railroad spike, and they stick it through both of his legs right there. And a lot of people don't know this about crucifixion, but it's actually one of the worst ways to die back in the day. The reason why is because the way that it actually kills you is through suffocation. You have to push up yourself to be able to breathe because your entire body is just collapsing on top of your lungs to the point where you can't breathe. And actually, the number one way where you actually die from crucifixion is where your lungs get punctured by one of your ribs that's broken, and your blood gets inside your lungs, and you actually drown to death in your own blood. So it's horrible to think about. So just imagine trying to pick yourself up with a railroad spike in both your legs, and that's what Jesus went through for each and every single one of us. And that's what God endured, watching us do it to him just to save our life. And God could have stopped it at every single moment. But he didn't because God loves us. And in closing, as he continues to play, you see, the story doesn't stop there. The story doesn't stop there. You see, the enemy's seeing God, seeing Jesus crucified, and he's put in the tomb. And, and, and he, he's rejoicing because... He thinks that it's done. But you see, the story doesn't stop there. Jesus is alive today. 
He's in this room. He's in each and every single one of our hearts, and he's up in heaven sitting at the right side of God, just like he was before he came down here. And the reason why I know this, and it was awesome, I was at UNF this past week, and I was in my history class, which is incredibly boring, and I was just flipping through the pages, looking at all the pictures, and I came to a, this place where it talked about culture, and it talked about tombs, about where people lived. And I, I remember, like, whenever I was young, a, a tomb by the name of Tutankhamun, or whatever his name was, King Tut, they found his tomb. And they saw it, and they said, this is King Tut's tomb. And then I flipped the page, and I saw Jesus' tomb, and I saw three pictures and underneath, in the, in the tiny little black text, it said, this is believed to have been Jesus' tomb. And you see the difference there. It caught my eye. I saw the believed. I was like, what does that mean? And I looked at it, and I said, this is King Tut's tomb. Why? Because they found King Tut's body in that tomb, so they know it's his. But you see, our, our Savior, and it talks about it in the song that we just sang before I got up here. Our band did an excellent job with it. It's one of my favorite songs. It goes, death was arrested. And one of the verses starts out saying, Our Savior displayed on a criminal's cross, darkness rejoiced as though heaven had lost. But then Jesus arose with our freedom in hand, and that's when death was arrested and my life began. You see, when I was looking at that, we see Tutankhamun's tomb. I saw the Mayan ruins. I saw the pyramids. I saw all that stuff. And they were their tombs. Why? Because they found their bodies. And then I saw Jesus's. And it said it's believed to have been his tomb. They had three tombs there. They didn't know which one it was. Why? Because his body wasn't in there. And that fires me up because I can just picture after that third day the sun was rising and Jesus got up, walked out on his two feet, rolled away that stone and walked out of that tomb with our freedom in hand. And that's the day that death was arrested and my life, our life began. And it fires me up. I'm ready to charge hell with a water gun. You see... There's so many people in this room say, I hated life. I hated God whenever I was younger. But then I saw, and I saw God break me down to the point where I was, I, was, I was nothing. And I knew that the only way to life is through him. The only way to heaven is through him. And so I know there's a lot of people in this room right now that struggle. Not the same struggle that I had, but you're struggling with addiction, with substance abuse, with sex, with pornography, with, with your family life. Maybe you had the same kind, sort of kind of condition that you were born with like with me. And I'm not going to say that I don't make mistakes because I do. I make a lot of them each day. But you see, when there's so many things, and, and, and we're going to do an altar call here in a second. But before we do so, I want to get your mind right. Just I've walked you through Jesus' life and everything, but there's a, the, the two biggest things that students and even adults will come up and say to me and Ryan and Cole and a bunch of people is that they'll start out by saying, I'm running, away, I'm running from God. I'm running from God. I'm running from this. I'm running for that. I've got all this baggage with me. And I laugh when people, when students will come up to me and say that, and they'll ask me, why are you laughing? Why are you laughing at me? And I'll say, you, it's impossible to run away from God. You see, wherever you run to, wherever you run to the beach, you run to your house, you run to a safe spot where you think is safe that no one else knows about, God's there. God created everything. So when you think you're running away from God, really you're just running in ignorance because you're running right to Him. All you got to do is just open up your eyes and open up your arms, and He's right there. And the second thing that a lot of students say to me is that there's a no turning back zone to where their past was too much, their past was, just, their past was just too rough, too bad, that God doesn't want me anymore. See, that's not the case. There's not a point at where there's a line and say, well, I've had such a bad past, now I'm on this line. There's a point of no return where God doesn't want me anymore. That's not the case at all. If you read any part of the Bible, there's so many different stories, mine included, where God accepts every single reject because every single one of us is a reject. 
And so if you're sitting there tonight and you're struggling, you got that tug on your heart. And it's tugging back and forth. I don't know what to do. I don't know about this. I don't know about breaking point. I don't know all this stuff. But I know there's people in this room right now that, are, that God's just breaking down the wall. See, because the enemy has the power to break you down with fear, with lust, with anger, with hate. But you see, the difference with God is he has the power to break you down with love. To where he not only breaks you down, but he builds you back up as a new person that's stronger than ever. And so I'm going to ask everyone to just bow their head and close their eyes. There's not one eye open in this entire room. Not one. There's not one. And I'm just going to ask each and every single one. There's not a script that needs to be said. There's not a certain prayer that needs to be prayed. There's nothing like that at all. What I'm going to ask you to do is if, if you feel that God's tugging on your heart and you, you have that, I had it too back then, where, God, where you're just being pulled apart, well, I don't want to be embarrassed, I'm nervous, I don't know what this means, I don't know, this is my first time in church, or it could be anything like that. I've just got one thing to say to you. I dare you to do it. I dare you to do it because you can ask every single leader in this room, the moment that they gave their lives to Christ, their life has never been the same. Never been the same. So if you're willing and you're saying it's time for me to surrender my life to Christ, I just want you to repeat after me. This isn't a password to get into heaven. This isn't a script. This is just a conversation with God that you're having. Ryan's going to be back there in the back. So if you prayed this prayer, you can start it out by saying, Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for my life even though I do not deserve it. I thank you for loving me and I believe that you sent your son down to die on the cross for me and that he resurrected on the third day and is alive in this room today. So Jesus, Father, forgive me of my sins and Jesus, enter my heart. I surrender my life to you. Make me a new person in you. In Jesus' heavenly name, that I pray, amen.